All right, we're starting this new series called True Virtue. It's just going to be this week and next week. Uh, But man, I am excited about this because in our day and age, true and virtue um, really could be oxymorons. And why do I say that? Because truth, the very definition is, is, is something that is real or fact. But how many of you know it's really hard to figure out what's real or fact? How many of you know you never know what to believe? It's like you read things and you watch things and you're like, and, and something deep down inside of you is like, I don't know about that, <laughs> right? Like, ah, ah, that just doesn't sit right. That doesn't feel right. That isn't, you know, something inside of me. Maybe it's the conscience that God put inside of me. It just, it's, it's just, ah, I don't know. And as we think, see things happen in our world, we're just not sure. And maybe we've held beliefs for a long time, and, but God has started to work in our life. And, and, and maybe it's the other way around. And it's like, man, I thought this was true and I thought this was right. But the more I get to know Jesus, I'm not sure if my beliefs are right either. And then virtue, what does this mean? It's behavior that shows high moral standards. And yet you look around at our world and you, you rub shoulders with people and you're like, everybody's got a different standard. Everybody has a different one. And so if, uh, you know, so trying to figure out what true virtue is in a, in a society where you can't really figure out what's true and, and, and everybody has a different standard, it feels almost impossible. Everyone wants to voice their own opinion, which I'm all for freedom. And saying, you know, you could say, you know, what you think and what your opinion is. But when everybody voices their opinion as truth, it just makes it that much harder to figure out what is true. Everybody wants to espouse their own personal moral high ground, making it that much harder to figure out what is right. Everyone wants to be right. Everybody wants to win. Just look at the 365,824 comments on every single Facebook post these days. It's like everybody wants a piece of the action. Everybody wants to say, and, and, and they think that when they, they put those 140 or however many characters it is, that, that someone's listening and, it, and it, they, they feel like, oh, I was heard. Everyone wants to be right and win. But it seems that in our collective pursuit for truth or justice or happiness or you fill in the blank in our pursuit of whatever we're going after, that we're not collectively more happy or unified or getting better. It, it, it almost feels like we're falling more and more apart. And it's harder to discern what's true and what's right. And it feels like our feet are on a really shaky foundation. Does anybody else feel like it, or is it just me? What's progress for some is defeat for another. What's absolute truth for some is foolishness for another. And so, like I said, putting true and virtue together at this time in history, right now in our culture, might as well be an oxymoron. Because everyone claims to have a corner on the truth. Some common terms that are used in our society and our culture today are your truth, my truth, relative truth, which those those violate the very definition of the word truth. You know, and this has led to moral relativity, meaning 
you know, hey, what's right for you might not be right wrong for me and vice versa. Completely different foundations. How do we get here? Where do we go from here? These are the questions of this series. And as a believer, I see this whole conundrum or, or pickle that we found ourselves in tracing itself all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And honestly, when you really look at history and you look at church history, it's nothing new. Why? Because no one in all of history likes to be told two things. The two things that no one likes to be told in the history of the world and the face of the planet, if you're a human being and you have blood running through your veins, are you can't or you shouldn't, right? So that's the first thing. No one likes to be told, don't do that or you shouldn't do that. Just ask your closest teenager. The other thing that no one likes to be told is, you're wrong. No one. Just ask Facebook. And so no one likes to be told you can or you shouldn't, but the, the, the very first thing that God did when he put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he said, you can do anything you want, you can touch anything you want, you can eat of all the fruit in the garden. You, here it is, it's perfection. Just don't touch these trees in the middle of the garden. Don't touch them. And so the devil comes along to Eve, and the, the very temptation that he gave her was, did God really say that you would die? So the very first temptation was testing this truth that God had spoken. That, hey, if you touch the fruit in the middle of the garden, you will surely die. So the devil comes along and says, did God really say that? Which is the same thing that the devil is saying to people in our society and not just them, but you and me right now. And then the devil said to her, you won't die. And then he said, God knows. The devil said to Eve, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And you see, we don't want to just be like God, knowing good and evil. We want to pick what is good and evil. We want to be the discerners of good and evil. We want to be the judges of good and evil. Because it's not enough. It's never enough to just know. We want to be the ones that call the shots. We want to be the ones that say what we can and what we can't do. We want to be the leaders and directors of our lives, which is exactly what Eve wanted Exactly what Adam wanted. Usually, this temptation that we have to do wrong or to do what God has told us not to do or to do what we know is not right is connected to comfort or pain or desire for power. Right? But here's what we know. We had it perfect in the garden. Everything she could... Eve had everything she could ever have needed. Adam had everything he could have ever needed. But we screwed up perfection and still wanted to go our own way. They wanted to create their own path. And so when it comes to our ability to get it wrong and to be the, the people who get to choose what is right and wrong, we get it wrong about 100% of the time. 
It doesn't matter if everything was perfect in the whole entire world, if you had everything you needed, if you had that extra dollar, if you had that extra car, if you had that extra house, if you had all the popularity, if everybody approved of you, if, you, if, if, if everything went right in your life, if you had had the perfect parents, if you had had the perfect family, if, if all the circumstances in your life were perfect, guess what? We would have still screwed it up. <laughs> How's that for encouragement this morning? Welcome to Mosaic Church. (laughs) But that's what Adam and Eve proved, proved to us, that we could have perfection, that we could have perfect union with God, and we still won't get it right without Jesus. Jesus comes along in the scene and says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. It's a big... Divide. Big difference. Jesus literally comes on the scene and says, I'm it. God, in the very beginning, said, I'm it. You got to follow my way. You got to do things like I told you, or else you'll surely die. And so how do we enact, how, we, how do we interact in this kind of, kind of environment? Because it's not a them problem, it's an us problem. It's not a just, oh, the world is getting so bad. No, it's a, my heart wants to go the wrong way. My heart. So how do we discover true virtue in a world that can't agree on the truth? How do you find it when it's so hard to see what is really real? And so we're just going to do some really practical tools for you and for me during this series. Uh, This week, it's going to be kind of general. Next week, we're going to get kind of specific. And so the first thing that we want to do, and you can grab your notes in your seats and fill in the blanks. You can open up the Mosaic Church app. the The notes are there as well. But the first thing is to put our anchor down in God's word. To put our anchor down. You see, an anchor goes down and it keeps the ship in the same spot no matter what the waves and the storms do, right? And hopefully your anchor doesn't just go down. Hopefully your anchor catches on something and it, and it sticks because, because if, if, it doesn't, if it doesn't catch on to something, then, then it, you're still going to get tossed around. You see, some of us, we drop our anchor, but we don't make sure that it gets set. And, 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 and because we're doing some of the right things, we feel like we're pretty good and like things in our life are going to be go okay. But hey, our anchor's not really hooked to something. So we got to make sure that our anchor goes down, that it's hooked to something. Why? So that we don't do what has been the age old problem so that we don't sin against God. It says in Psalm 119.11, it says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Right? And so why do we need God's word in our life? Why do we need to anchor ourselves to him so that we don't do what messed it all up in the very beginning so that we don't sin against God? So that we don't go our own way. And so we got to put our anchor down in God's word. What does this look like? I'm going to give you just a, a real quick uh, pathway on what it might look like to anchor yourself in God's word. It begins with exploring God's word. You see a lot of people in, in our society because we, um, we're really living in a, in a post-Christian culture in, in, in that a lot of people, man, I've, I've given away brand new Bibles to people in their 50s and 60s that literally never had a Bible. 
People say, oh, America is a Christian nation. America is not a Christian nation. If, if, if I can give a, a Bible to somebody in their 50s and 60s that has never had, had one. And so we're, we're in a very post, post-Christian society, uh, you know, and, and whatever ideals that maybe, you know, had guided people at one time, <clears throat> you know, we're, we're long past that. And so, and that's not even the point anyway, and so we won't even get into that. But the first step then comes with exploring God's word, like figuring it out and creating some habits to read it and get it in our heart. And then we're answering questions in this exploration process. What, what do I believe about this? And what do I believe about that? And we're, we're figuring out just that on a very base level, what in the world does God's word say? You see, this is the first step. And guess what? There's people that don't even believe in God, that don't even believe in Jesus, and they're exploring God's word. And if that's you today, you're in the right place. You're in the right place. Because Jesus can handle any question you have. He can handle your doubt. He, you know, Because if truth is really truth, it can stand the test of time, and it can stand the questioning, and it can stand the doubt. Why? Because the truth doesn't really change. And so Jesus can handle it. And so when you put your anchor down in God's word, it begins just by exploring it. And then the, the second thing that happens is you know it. And a lot of us stop there. We stop in just knowing God's word. But let me tell you, knowing God's word is not the same as anchoring yourself in God's word. You see, you can know something, but still not follow it. Jesus said it like this. He said, don't just hear my words, listen and really do what it says. And so knowing God's word is not enough. Why? Because if we're not careful, knowledge will puff up, you know, and, we, and, we, and then we'll come to church and we'll be like, oh, Joe, I've heard that before. I've heard that before. Well, guess what? Hearing and knowing is only half the battle. And so if we're going to put our anchor down, we can't stop at just exploration. We can't stop at just knowing. We can't stop at just a casual um, uh, understanding. The next step is obeying God's word. Obeying God's word is saying yes, even when it's hard. Even when other, other people are going the other direction, we begin to say yes. And, and I really believe the more that we say yes, the more God provides us with understanding. The more we say yes and the more we do what we know we should be doing and we know what God is leading us to do, the more he just, he just opens up this umbrella of blessing over our life and starts to lead us in the way everlasting. And then the, the last step to putting an anchor down in God's word is, is being transformed by God's word. All right, so first we're just exploring, then we're knowing it, then we're obeying it. But God, God doesn't want us to just stop there, just being just mindlessly obeying and being yes men or yes women that just do whatever he says, although it's good to obey God, obviously. No, he wants to transform us. He wants to renew our minds. He wants to give us a completely different worldview. I, I like to say that this is the time where your tastes start to change. Where you don't, even, you don't even think like you used to think anymore. Why? Because God's word has rewired your mind and rewired your heart. And it's not just a transformation of behavior, but of perspective. That you literally don't see things the way that you used to see them. It goes from this is what I should do to this is what I want to do. And so this is when you really know that, man, my life is anchored in God's word. I don't just know it. I don't just know about it. I don't just obey it sometimes, 
but it is completely rewiring my desires, my everything. I'm putting an anchor down in God's word. I see the Bible as God's authority in my life, not just a good book. Listen, believer, if someone in your life or that you see doesn't believe that the Bible is God's word, then don't be surprised when they don't act according to God's word. And this is, I think, is where the American church just really needs to get with it. You cannot expect somebody who doesn't believe that, God, that the Bible is God's authority for us. If they don't believe that, they're probably not going to act according to it. Does that make sense? And so don't be so surprised when somebody's anchor isn't in God's word, when they haven't gone through the transformation process that happens when, when we just continually submit and obey and live by God's word to act like it. You see, when we, when we live out true virtue, when we, try, we go on this journey to figure out what it is, the question isn't where do you stand on this issue? It's not the question. Everyone today wants to know where everybody stands on every issue. But can I just challenge you? That's not even the question. It's not. You don't want to know what the real question is? What do you say about the Bible? That's the question to end all questions. What does the Bible say about it? What does God's word have to say on the subject? The most studied, researched, read book in history is God's Word. And I just wanna encourage you, if you don't know what it says about a certain issue, you can know. And you can know what it means. There's timeless principles in God's Word that speak to right where you're at, right now, today, and you can absolutely know beyond a shadow of a doubt what God's Word says. And as you're interpreting and as you're, you're, you're figuring out, you know, how does this apply to me? I encourage you to get with people that have been there before, that have a, have a commitment to the fact that God's word really is his word, that it's inspired, that it's all true, that it's infallible, which means it's without error. Because there's a lot of people that'll say, oh, I'll interpret God's word for you. But you gotta know what it really means. And it's possible even in an age where everybody has their own opinion. I would submit that this lack of anchor in God's word is why there's so much anxiety and inst instability in our, our world because God created us to have guardrails. He created us to have moral boundaries. He created us to have, have these protections in our life that keep us from screwing everything up. What did Jesus say when he came on the scene? He said, the truth shall set you free, right? And so the converse would be true that if I don't have the truth in my life, then I'm not free, I'm in bondage. If the truth sets you free, then without the truth that is, that is Jesus and his word and the Bible that he's given us as a guidebook and as a, a, a light for our feet, if we don't have it, and if our anchor isn't put down into it, then we're in bondage. And when we go outside of these boundaries that God's word gives us, it causes stress and harm. And so the first step into figuring out true virtue in your life is to pursue a greater understanding, a greater obedience, and transformation of your mind and your heart through the Word of God, the Bible. 
Number two, how do we try to find true virtue in a world that, where it seems so hard to find? We represent God's word in the way that his word prescribes. Many times we hear the truth of God's word and then we, we, we literally go all crazy with it. And we start to use God's word as a club. We start to use God's word as a, as, as a weapon. Now, the word of God is a two-edged sword, but guess who it cuts? <laughs> Me. It divides my joint and marrow. It, it, it cuts down deep in my heart to show me where I should go and what I should do. And so the, world, the, the word of God isn't a tool that I fight people with. It's a, it's a tool that I fight the devil with, and he's not a person. And it's a tool that I fight my battle with. The, tool, the word of God is not a bludgeoning tool to fight people that aren't believers. The only person that Jesus fought with the word of God were church people who thought they knew everything. And so I'm going to represent God's word in the way that his word prescribes. This is true virtue because remember, moral excellence, that's what virtue is. It's, okay, how am I going to behave now because I know God's word? Listen, if I'm going to represent God's word in the way that his word prescribes, then I've, then I've got to remember that my life and the sum total of my life is not a stance on any particular issue. It's not. My life is not a stance. I am not the sum total of what I tell everybody that I believe. Rarely will you convince a non-believer to follow godly principles for living that are counterculture. You won't do it. Why? Because the transformation of a heart and a life only happens once a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and lets God's word purify them. And so when I get God's word in my life and then I go to be virtuous in a world that is full of ambiguity, I've got to represent that very word that he has put in my heart in the way that his word prescribes. Listen, you or I don't hold the world on our shoulders with our stances, especially on Facebook. You are a representative of Christ. You don't carry the final responsibility. Your life is an opportunity. Your life is a mission. Your life is, is you are an ambassador and a representative for his causes and his word. And so your number one mission is to surrender to and exalt the name of Jesus Christ the Bible says that every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And so the number one job that I have in life is not to stand for this issue or stand for that issue or to stand against this issue or to stand against that issue. My number one job in, in life is to surrender to and exalt the name of Jesus. And the Bible says that when I do that, that he will draw all men unto him. And so we gotta get the flow right. The flow is, I'm going to love, I'm going to believe in, and I'm going to surrender to Jesus. And then I'm going to submit to him with my decisions, right? And as I do that, and as I live out a life that is submitted to God, and other people see that changed and transformed life, then they're going to wonder what I've got, right? 
they're going to wonder. What issue did the disciples stand trial for? What issue did Jesus stand trial for? He stood trial for the fact that he said he was God. And the disciples stood trial and died for the fact that they believed that he was God. And so if there is one issue that you publicly are going to go to bat for, let it be Jesus. Let it be Jesus. People have got to know what you're for just as much or more than they know what you're against. Why? Because once somebody meets Jesus, they can't help but be changed. And once they meet Jesus, God, Jesus is going to lovingly bring their life into alignment with his word. But the when and how those conversations happen really, really matter. So when you speak publicly, you're speaking on someone else's behalf, so you'd better follow, follow the manual. What does the manual say? And by the manual, I mean the Bible. Philippians 2.15 says, do everything without complaining and arguing. We can just stop right there. Jesus, let me submit my social media to your leading and guiding and help me to never complain or argue publicly. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. So if that's true, then God isn't going to ask you where you stand on a particular issue, although that's important. You need to have the right stance and you need to do things God's way. But the question that God is going to ask you is, what did you do with my son? What did you do with the opportunities that I gave you to love others? Did you take care of the poor, the widow, and the orphan? Did you share the gospel? Did you give as freely as you received? You see, your job is not to hold the world accountable. Your job is to represent and be an ambassador for the name of Jesus Christ. In that verse that we just read, where it says, do everything without complaining and arguing. Some other translations use words like murmuring or disputings. The word murmuring means to, in the Greek, means to mutter, murmur, grumble, complain. It means that quiet, soft, behind-the-back undertone where we're, just, we're just, just angry about everything. It's the kind of criticism, dissatisfaction, and fault-finding and gossip that goes on when we're just bashing everybody and everything all the time. The word disputing means arguments that are outward and vocal and public. Opening, open questions and expressions of doubt. Simply stated, it's disputes or arguments that have broken out into the open. And so as Christ followers and as believers, we got to be careful about what we're arguing about publicly, especially within the body of Christ. Matthew 18 gives a really good outline for how to handle disagreements. And they begin privately, and then they happen privately again before they go public. And so we gotta follow the guidelines. Jesus didn't argue that much. He would cast seeds, and then he'd walk away. Anytime he was baited, he usually didn't, 
take the bait. He usually never gave the answer they thought he was going to give. Right? He went where he was wanted. And when he wasn't wanted, he shook the dust off his feet. That's exactly what he told the disciples to do. And he went somewhere else. He didn't grovel. He didn't beg. He died. He rose again. And he ascended to heaven. He did all that. His whole ministry in the span of three years. If he was trying to set up an earthly kingdom, then he probably would have tried to live longer than 33 years. You know, you think about that, 33 years, some dynasty. No, he had three public years of ministry. You see, the point wasn't winning. The point was getting the message out. The point was laying his life down for others. He helped people. He healed people. Remember, when he was baited, he rarely took the bait or rarely answered directly. And so our ultimate goal should be like his. It's not to be right. It's not to win the argument. It's simply to point to Christ. Jesus didn't prove how right he was. He proved how loving he was by dying on the cross. He had little time for people who weren't receptive to his message. When he went to his hometown, they were like, who is this guy? Don't we know him? Don't we know his parents? How's he? And so guess what he did? He said, you know what? I'm not going to do anything else here. I'm going to go on to the next town. So he just didn't, he, he didn't even argue. He just left. And remember, as you interact with the world and you try to represent God's word in a way that God's word prescribes, just remember they killed Jesus. They killed or tried to kill every single one of the apostles, including Paul. John was the only one that, that survived. And so we want to represent God's word in the way that his word prescribes. And we got to do it with grace and keep the main thing the main thing. So what is the main thing? I got a lot to say today, so I'm going to wrap this up as quickly as possible. I apologize. Number three, we got to focus on the mission more than my rights. We got to focus on the mission more than my rights. And this is really where the rubber hits the road, man. If we're going to have true virtue, if we're going to behave in a way that honors God's word, but we're going to stake, stick to the truth and we're going to do the right thing, then we got to behave in a way that where we're focusing on the mission more than our rights. Why? Because when we stand for God's word, we will be challenged. We will, we will be challenged. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 11. He said, from the time of John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. And guess what? It's still happening. And so when you stand for the right things, guess what? You cannot help but be attacked. And some of you are like, man, Joe, this is a hard message. Hey, living for Jesus is kind of hard sometimes, but here's the truth. When you say Jesus is God and he's the only way, you will be attacked. In Matthew eleven sixteen, Jesus said, to what can I compare this generation? It's like children playing a game in the public square. Listen, church, life's not a game. Life's not a game. That's why the mission is so important. That's why we got to say and spray it that Jesus sees you, that he died for you, that he loves you, that he wants to forgive you of your sins and give you a different life. It's not a game. And so Jesus is talking here about how the, the, you know, the message is getting, getting um, uh, pushed back and, and, and you know, he just sees people playing a game. And then what did Jesus say? He said, for John, spent, for John didn't spend his time eating and drinking 
and he's possessed by a demon, the son of man, or he's possessed by a demon, but the son of man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and other sinners, but wisdom is shown to be right by its results, and you're like, what is he talking about? Basically, he's saying, John the Baptist, he did his thing, and John the Baptist was pretty great. Jesus, he did his thing, and obviously Jesus is pretty great, and they did it, guess what, in two different ways. And guess what? They were both pointing to God. And guess what? The people of the world that didn't believe didn't like either one of them. (laughs) Think about that. Both John the Baptist and Jesus were disapproved by a lot of people. And so that's why Jesus didn't focus on his rights. He didn't focus on Um, He didn't focus on winning. He didn't focus on just being right. He focused on the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross for you and for me. You see, they criticized Jesus too. And so you and I were probably going to be criticized. I get criticized on a regular basis. (laughs) Um, First, you know, leading. and So you're probably going to be criticized too. And so the challenge for us is how do we interact in a world that has no moral compass or doesn't honor God? And remember, it's the different century, but it's the same problem. There's been no perfect or sacred times in history, no perfect times in history. Hey, we're going through the same things. And so what do we do? We focus on our mission more than our rights. We focus on our mission more than our rights. What's our mission? To bring as many people into a loving relationship with Jesus Christ as we possibly can. And so in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul gives, a, Paul gives us a really good model. The context of this is that Paul is getting criticized, just like John the Baptist was criticized, and just like Jesus was criticized. Well, guess what? Paul's now getting criticized. And so Paul is talking about how he could be taking pay from the church. He had the right to be paid, but he wasn't and he wouldn't. And you can go and read the whole passage and kind of get a gist this week. But why was Paul saying that he he wouldn't receive money and he wouldn't get paid? Because it wasn't about his rights, it was about the mission. And this is a heart check for all of us. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I doing it because I deserve it because I feel like I'm in this fight and I've got to be right and I've got to win or because of the mission. Paul's credibility was being questioned. His messages were being questioned. His preaching style, his lifestyle, his doctrine, his charisma, his authoritativeness, his appearance. He was being questioned left and right. And so what did he say? He said, even though I'm a free man with no master, I've become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. So who was he a slave to? Well, obviously he was a slave to Christ, but he was also a slave to all people to bring them to Christ. Why? Because the mission mattered more than his rights. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew 
to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I'm subject, not subject to the law, I did this so that I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so that I could bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God, I obey the law of Christ. When I'm with those who are weak, I share their weaknesses, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground, underline that, with everyone doing doing everything I can to save some. How many of you would agree that we've gotten pretty bad at common ground? We have. We've gotten horrible at disagreeing without being disagreeable. So I try to find common ground, do everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share sharing its blessings. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training, underline discipline. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. Basically, this life is not a game. I'm not just doing it and, and you know, having fun and doing some spiritual exercises and going to church and just playing religion and playing. No, this life is not a game. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. So disciplined. And what is he disciplined about? About sharing the gospel, about his own life, about his own choices, about being somebody that finds common ground with other people. Why? So that by all possible means, he could bring some people to Jesus. Does that mean that he was shifting in his beliefs? Does that mean he wasn't staying on the word of God? No. The foundation and the anchor of his life was not changing, but how he interacted with the dying world that without Jesus was going to spend an eternity separated from God in a place like hell changed. And he was disciplined in what he said and how he said it and who he talked to and how he talked to them. He was disciplined in how he came across to the world. He didn't just spout it out and spout it off and tell everybody what he thought all the time about everything. No, he operated on a basis of relationship and said the right thing at the right time to the right people. And what is that called? It's called wisdom. Said I have, in another translation, I become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. Because it's not about my rights, it's about the mission that God has given me. So I'm gonna be way more about them meeting Jesus than I, am, I, than I am about everyone knowing where I stand about everything all the time. Because honestly, no one cares. <laughs> Proverbs 15:1 says, a gentle answer deflects anger, but harsh words make tempers flare. So I just wanna encourage you, and I've gone way too long today. If you're new, I, I normally don't do this. I'm usually pretty punctual, so I apologize. But think about it. It's not just knowing the truth. It's how, how am I using the truth to live out my life in a way that draws other people to Jesus? 
How am I propping up the name of Jesus? How am I propping up what he's done for me on the cross? How am I propping? And I, I understand that this message was probably a little bit more for church people today. And so if you're new with us, come back. But the reason that Paul had this kind of attitude is because Jesus laid down his life for him when he was still a sinner. And so the moment that I forget about how big the grace of God has been in my life is the moment that I become calloused. And I forget that I need to also be gracious to other people, amen? And so, man, I pray that this word today, even though sometimes I feel like it was a little scattered and all over the place, I feel like it, it gets in your heart and helps you to think about how are you coming across to a world that needs Jesus? And how are you taking the truth that you've been given and living it out in a virtuous way that honors Christ. Amen, that's the heart. Amen, let me pray for you today. God, I thank you for your people. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that when I was still a sinner, you died for me. I thank you for the fact that you've given us truth and it set us free. And now you've given us the mission to spread this truth, this unchanging truth to a hurting and broken and dying world. And so help me, Jesus. Help me, number one, to discern the truth, to anchor my life in your word. Help me, number two, to figure out, okay, how am I gonna take this word and interact with the world that doesn't always believe it? And number three, God, how am I gonna lay down my rights and my own wants and my own desires and, and keep the mission that you've given me paramount in my life? Jesus, how am I going to do this? Give us wisdom, Lord, as we go about our daily interactions because everyone is different. Every interaction is different. Every situation can be different, but your word is never changing. And so help us, Lord, to live out an unchanging, inspired word of God in a world that seems to be changing all the time. Help us, Lord. You might be here today and you say, I need, to, I need to begin to follow Jesus. And maybe you've been coming for a few weeks or a couple months, and, and, but you're like, man, today is the time where I'm gonna lay down my rights and I'm really gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a decision to follow Jesus with my life. And if that's you, just raise your hand today. I wanna pray with you. Say, I wanna follow Jesus. I wanna begin a relationship with him today. Is that you? Is that you? Say it. Hey, I'm, I'm done playing games. It's time to begin a real, real relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. Maybe you're here today and you say, Joe, I've really been struggling with how to live out the truth in my life with a, a world that is so broken. And, and maybe you say, Joe, I get frustrated with how things are going. And it's just, I just don't know what to do. And like me, you just wanna pray a prayer and say, God, give me wisdom in how to do this. If that's you, just as I pray a closing prayer, just raise your hand today, let's pray together. God, here we are, we need wisdom. And so help us, help us as we live out this challenge to be all things to all people so that by all possible means we could win some. Help us to be sensitive to where people are at, God, and, 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 and not changing the truth or where we stand, but, but maybe, bringing your word to in a way to them that they're going to understand and, and they're going to see and full of grace and full of compassion. Help us, Lord, because we know that when you get a hold of their life, God, when they, when they begin a relationship with you, 
transformation is going to happen and things are going to happen in their life that we could have never brought about on our own. So help us to live lives in such a way that is going to usher people to the foot of the cross where transformation happens. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us online at Mosaic Church. We hope today's message was life-changing and useful. For more info, visit mosaiccincinnati.com. 